Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. Uh, We are in week two of three in a series that's entitled, Who is the Spirit? Uh, So we're going to be looking at Ezekiel 37. The Spirit here can be known. Uh, The Spirit ought to be known, and the Spirit deserves to be known because He is God. And he is equally deserving of glory and praise just as much as God the Father and God the Son. Last week was the spirit of truth. And this week, we're going to see that he is the spirit of life. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ezekiel 37. You'll find the text also in your worship guides. Listen carefully because this is the word of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were many, very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with sin or with skin. Sorry, boy, that was a bad one. (laughs) Cover you with skin. And put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to them, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Amen. Everyone wants to live. I don't mean that as simply avoiding death. I'm referring to living. What does it mean to be alive? To live a beautiful and a flourishing and a worthy life. We'll consider that after a while, but it's relevant to ask ourselves that because this is a passage here that's all about life. The Spirit of God reaching into dead places and bringing forth new life. He's always done that. He did that at creation. In Genesis 1-2, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, that he was present and active in creation. 
And he still does that. He still works in the same way to give us life. And Ezekiel is given this vision of dry bones to illustrate this. God brings him this vision of going into a valley. And this valley, as he looks out, it's strewn with bones. We've seen images of death before. Uh, We look at our phones, we we turn on the news, and we see bodies, piles of bodies in Ukraine. Uh, We see photos, or maybe you've seen photos, maybe you've even seen footage from cleaning out the Nazi death camps uh, filled with these piles of emaciated bodies. It's horrible. Images like that bring us shock and horror because we see the cruel reality of death and death on such a large scale and death all around. And Ezekiel's response would be similar to ours looking at that as he looked out at the field of bones scattered about. It's a scene of great slaughter. And these bones have been there for a long time. These bones have been picked clean of all the flesh from the vultures and the scavengers. And it says that they were very dry. They were sun-bleached, lying about on the ground. And as you form a mental picture, though, don't just think of a bunch of skeletons in a field. Because the bones are strewn about, totally disconnected from one another. Piles and piles of these old, dead bones. And God has brought Ezekiel here in this vision to a place that's filled with death and hopelessness. There's not a single sign of life here. Everything says otherwise. Nothing's been alive here for a very long time. And it doesn't seem that there could be in any way that there could be life that exists in this place. It's a scene of utter hopelessness. But it's also a cursed place. Or rather, a people who had been cursed. Death without burial was regarded as a cursed experience in both the Old Testament and the ancient context in which these people, Israel, lived. If you died, you wanted to be buried. Because if your body was left out in the open, then it was left to the degrading act of being fodder for the vultures. And Deuteronomy 28 even lists amongst all the covenant curses that God would bring upon Israel if they were unfaithful. He even lists being struck by their enemies and left out in the fields for the vultures as being one of those curses. This is a wretched, dead, lifeless, cursed place that Ezekiel sees before him. And I'm sure that he wanted to get out of there as fast as he could, but God speaks to him. He said, son of man, can these bones live? I mean, the obvious answer is no. Life doesn't spontaneously restart among the dead, and certainly not in a place that's as hopeless as this picture we have here. But Ezekiel's response is so curious. He says, oh, Lord God, you know. Of course, these bones can't come to life on their own. But Ezekiel also knows who it is who posed this question. He knows the power of God. If these bones are to live, it has to be by God's power. But he doesn't refer to his ability. He refers to God's willingness. Of course, God can make these bones live. But will he? Will he bring life out of death? And God appears to be willing But he tells Ezekiel, though, to do perhaps the most asinine thing imaginable. He says, preach to the bones. Preach to the bones and they'll come to life. He says, prophesy to the bones. And prophecy in the Bible isn't complicated. When you think of that, it's just speaking the word of the Lord. 
In other words, it's preaching. Stand before the piles of the dry, dead bones and start preaching to them. Pronounce the words of the living God to these who are slain. But you have to be alive to hear, right? How is this going to work? I don't know the last time you've seen a skeleton or a skull, but you know what? Skulls don't have ears. But Ezekiel, though, obeys. He preaches the word that was given to him from the Lord to the bones. And, I'm sh- and sure enough, though, something happens. There's this rattling, this clacking starts amid the pile of bones as they start coming together suddenly and in an instant. A femur from one pile comes together into a hip from another pile where a radius and an ulna in separate piles connect together and then they connect to a, a scapula and a humerus. It's already rejoined there. And in a moment then, all of these bones are pulled together out of their chaos and they're organized. They're not no longer piles of bones here, but they're fully formed skeletons now laying on the ground. And then sinews start to come forth, and they start to bind the bones together. And then after that, flesh comes out, and it covers the bones. It fills them out, and then skin begins to grow over it all. Ezekiel's witnessing a reverse of normal body composition, decomposition before him. Not only is order coming out of the chaos from the scattered bones, but they're being recreated back into flesh and blood bodies. It's as if when they were unzipped at death, they're being zipped right back together here. And so they're no longer dry bones. They're bodies that have been brought together miraculously. But what did God say to Israel? Or sorry, what did God say to Ezekiel? Son of man, can these bones live? Well, there's still no life in them. They're still dead bodies. And God says to prophesy again, keep preaching the word of the Lord. But this time he says, preach to the breath. Preach to the wind. At this point, you might be asking why I'm preaching this in a series on the Holy Spirit. Where are you taking us with this right now? Well, this is actually a passage about the Spirit. Because the Hebrew word for spirit is also the same word for breath and wind. They're all the same. God tells Ezekiel to preach to the breath. It's a reference to the spirit. He's essentially saying, preach to the spirit. Call to and with the spirit when you stand before these bones. And so even though it hasn't been explicit, we get the idea here that it's the spirit who's at work here, giving life and reanimating the dead. And God says, say to the breath, say to the spirit, come from the four winds and breathe on these slain so that they might live. The four winds from the four corners of the earth, representative of the whole earth there. This is the divine breath. This is the spirit of God that covers the entire world, giving life and sustaining all things. And now this is the Lord who's telling Ezekiel to appeal to come and, and, and bring life here. This is the very breath of life from creation and sustaining all things now coming into these very bones and exerting his same recreating power that he had at the very beginning. And the spirit blows and breathes into them, reanimating them so that they come to life and they stand up. He turns these lifeless, hopeless, cursed pile of bones now into an army. Life has been brought into the most unimaginable place. And it's done the most unimaginable thing. And the curse over them seems also to be gone as well. 
Because if not, you'd expect them to stand up alive and then to fall back over dead again. Their life, though, is a sign that the curse that they received is over now. Son of man, can these bones live? Absolutely. But not only by God's power, but by his willingness. But why does he bring life in stages? Why does he recreate their bodies before then filling them with life? It reminds us that life is more than just merely physical. Being alive isn't just having a beating heart and a functioning brain. It's having a soul that's alive. And God is interested in the whole person, not just the body, not just the soul. He's interested in both. And to understand that what it means to be truly alive, we need to account for this. It's not enough to just serve him with our bodies, nor even just our souls. Being alive means being oriented towards him in both our bodies and our souls, the outside and the inner. And Ezekiel is undoubtedly baffled at this, as I think probably most of us would be. He's just witnessed the impossible here. But God doesn't just stop there. He tells him what this vision means. He applies it to his people, Israel, starting in verse 11. He says that the dry bones were a metaphor of what they had been experiencing. They were a people who had been ripped from their homes, who had been taken into exile in Babylon for their, faithfulness to, for their unfaithfulness to God. And now it seemed as if they were finally abandoned by God and had lost all hope, just like those bones. It was the curse of their own stubbornness and their own rebellion having come back upon their heads. The reason why is because they had consistently tried to seek life apart from God. What he had promised them, the privilege of knowing him as his special covenant people, and the means of life that he gave them just wasn't enough for them. But they wanted more instead. They wanted to try to find life apart from knowing God and his promises. And as they did so, as they tried to find life apart from God, they ended up breaking faith with him. And they experienced death in an actual real way, not just theologically, but really spiritually here, the bones inside of them were the bones that were in the valley. They were the people who were dead, but dead on the inside. They were people who were cut off, who were cursed and had no hope. They were powerless to do anything to pull themselves out of their hole, not only a physical hole as they sat as slaves in Babylon, but also a spiritual hole as they kept falling prey to their own desires day after day and generation after generation. Son of man, can these bones live? Not on their own, but God's able to raise the dead. Is he willing? Can they live? Yes. Because he promises Ezekiel what he would soon do with them. He would bring them back from the dead and restore life into their bones. He would recreate them from being a dead people into a great army, but yet so much deeper than just the outside. It is a life that would penetrate their very hearts. He would bring their souls to life. He would make them truly alive. And how? By the spirit, by the breath, by the wind working in them, bringing them to life and restoring life to their bones. And this life then, it says, would lead them into a true knowledge of the Lord. 
They would know him as more than just as, as God overall or just the, the, the lawgiver, but they would know him as their covenantal Lord who had entered into a relationship with them and who would never break faith with them, who had not abandoned them. They would know him and know him deeply as being faithful to his covenant to resurrect them and to always be their Lord, even despite their own unfaithfulness. In fact, knowing his life-giving graciousness would open them up to a whole new facet of their knowledge of him. And having that knowledge, knowing God as their Lord who resurrected them from the dead, that would lead them to be a worshiping people who lived in faithfulness. A people who were given life as whole people. As, as, as in their new lives, they could actually serve, them, serve him with their whole selves. They could do so with enlivened bodies and enlivened souls. And all of this would come from the spirit of life sent by God to raise them up. And it's the same spirit who continues to work today. The vision, this vision here, the spirit's work, wasn't just for Israel, but it also applies to us. Because the sinful dead spiritual condition of Israel, dry bones, is the same condition that everyone shares left on their own. And for anyone to experience life, to experience life truly abundantly, they need to be raised up from the dead. Lots of people go about life thinking that they're alive. They're alive because things are going well for them and they're satisfied, or at least they're satisfied well enough. They hold a good job. Uh, they live here in one of the most beautiful places in the country, in Sonoma County. They have a, a great spouse. They have great kids. Being alive means being successful. Or they feel alive in, in other different ways. They might feel, think that they're alive because they're chasing their dreams and pursuing their passions. They might feel alive because they're enlightened and they feel at peace with themselves. They find purpose in the world. But is that what it means to really be alive? How much of our ideas of being alive are actually quite superficial because they only revolve around ourselves and our own fulfillment? If they revolve only around ourselves and our feelings of satisfaction, then we're actually living quite small and inward-focused lives. And most of all, how does it take into account that the transcendent and holy God really is out there? Uh, the twist at the end of the movie, The Sixth Sense, is when the character played by Bruce Willis finds out in panic that he's actually been dead the whole time throughout the movie. How many of us are walking through life in the same way? Thinking that we are alive only to have it tragically revealed to us at the end that we've actually been dead the whole time. That we've misunderstood what it means to be alive and instead we've been dead from the very start. That's what the Bible says. Not only pictured here in the dry bones, but the whole Bible says that on our own, we are dead in our sins. A classic text, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that you are dead in your sins and your trespasses. That means that we are dead because that's the consequence of sin, death. But also the death of our bodies, though, is merely an outward symptom of where the problem really lies. That we are dead to the very core. Our hearts are dead. We are absolutely incapable of doing anything that would please God or even make him glance with compassion in our general direction. 
So it's actually quite opposite. We're not alive, we're cursed. We're just like those bones that are strewn all about the valley. We are cursed in our sins that were the cause of death in the first place. It's the wrath of God for that curse which hangs heavy over us. What we need is life. We need life then to spring up within us. We need resuscitation by the Spirit to bring life within our dead hearts if there is to be any hope for us. And thankfully, praise God that there is hope. Son of man, can these bones live? Oh Lord, you know. You're able. But are you willing? Just as God sent his spirit to give life to the dry bones, he sends his spirit into the hearts of the dead to us to give us life. And it all comes by his grace. There's not a single thing that we could ever do to garner his favor if we really understand that left to our own selves, we're dead. Dead things don't do anything to gain compassion or favor. Last weekend, I found a couple dead rats in my garage. You know what feelings I had? It wasn't, it wasn't favor, it was disgust. But when God looks at the dead and he brings them to life, it's not because of anything within them that he saw. I mean, what could he see, really? No, it's simply because he wanted to, for the praise of his glorious name, that we would know that he is the Lord, just as he said to Israel. A doctor who resuscitates the patient on the brink of death is just doing their duty. It's their job. It's what they're supposed to do. But not so with God. He has no obligation. He's not bound by duty. When he resuscitates, it's because he chose to. And life ultimately comes through union with the risen Jesus by faith. As we believe and trust in him, we come alive just as real as he rose from the dead. Colossians 2, 12 through 14 says, You were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our debt of sin, the sin that we were born into, the sin that brought us death in the first place was taken by Jesus at the cross. And he took that sin and he canceled the debt. And he also took the corresponding curse for that sin. The curse pictured by the dry bones was laid upon him in our place on the cross. As we were dead, dry, and cursed, Jesus became dried up and cursed for us as he hung on that cross. His bones withered and dried up so that ours might come to life instead. And life comes through union with, G with this Jesus by faith. But if it's by faith, then we still have no hope on our own, right? If I'm dead, how am I to believe? How am I to trust in this Jesus if I'm just as dead and dried up as those rats in my garage? Dead people just stay dead. What's needed is breath to blow into, into dead places and to breathe life. And that comes through the Spirit. The spirit of life breathes resuscitation into our souls and brings us to life. And as newly alive, we have new hearts which can finally believe 
and trust in Jesus given for sinners just like you and me. And with this new life comes the knowledge of God, as we saw in verse 13. The Spirit opens our hearts and makes them not only able to believe, but also opens our eyes so that we will believe, that we see Jesus as good and beautiful, and we want nothing more than him. And we, believe, we begin to know him in a fresh new way as the Spirit breathes his sweet fragrance into our depths. And knowing him like this leads us to love him because he first loved us. If you want a fancy theological term for all of this, it's called regeneration. The spirit makes us alive for the first time. If you believe in Jesus, it's only because the spirit has made you alive. In other words, it's all by God's grace. The gift of Jesus is God's grace given from the father. But if you're dead you'll never choose him. Dead people don't have any senses. They're totally unaware of anything around them. Even good things you can put before them. You can have Jesus presented to you over and over, but without life, you will never believe. But the gift of believing Jesus is also God's grace given to us by the Spirit. And if you don't believe, there's nothing that I can do to convince you of the gospel and of your need of Jesus. But the Spirit can And the Spirit does. He can give life to your bones. And as we read here, God is willing. If you're pondering these things and pray that he would come and bring you life. But the Spirit's life-giving initiative also, though, has deep ramifications for those of you who do believe. Namely, how far does your understanding of God's grace go? Well, how dead were you? There's an inverse relationship between understanding our dead states and God's grace. If we were dead, not just mostly dead, not dying, flatline dead and unable to do anything to even get God's attention, then we ought to fall flat on our faces in worship. To quote a book from one of my seminary professors, it puts the amazing back into grace. It ought to kill any pharisaical tendencies that we might have. Understanding the Spirit's life, conversely, kills any sense of self-righteousness or inflated ideas of our own selves. And instead, what what do we do? We just simply place our hands over our lips in silence at his mercy. We see more than just his ability to save or to raise from the dead. We see his willingness to save because we've received that personally. We are enlivened in body and soul. And it becomes our responsibility then to serve him, body and soul. To worship him, body and soul. It makes us grateful for what we have and not, and especially for having God as our Lord. It makes us less stingy because we have been given so much in our desperation. It makes us quick to repent. It makes us quick to forgive. It reveals to us that truly living is more than being comfortable or enlightened or following our own pursuits. But true life is knowing and worshiping this God. The spirit of life or spirit gives life to raise us from the dead. But how does that happen? What's the ordinary way for us to expect for this to happen? Because if there's not some means, then the Spirit just gets, then just gets us in some way. And if there's not some means through which we can anticipate him to work, then when can we expect him to do so? 
Or do we just sit around waiting for him to do whatever he's going to do, whenever he's going to do it? Well, what did the Lord tell Ezekiel to do? Speak to the bones. Speak God's word to them. Preach. As Ezekiel stood before the dead and dry bones and he proclaimed God's word to them, the spirit went out with that word and brought forth life. Would we expect God's spirit to work in any different way still today? Circumstances might be different over the two, two and a half thousand year gap between Ezekiel and us. Attention spans might be shortened. Abilities to sit might have changed. Demands and expectations of people change. But you know what hasn't changed? The human condition. That we are dead bones apart from God's grace. And if the spirit doesn't go forth and work through God's word, God's word as it's in scripture here, and as it's proclaimed from scripture, then we are still dead. No matter if we live in ancient Israel, or the Roman Empire, or the postmodern West, or whatever else is just the next stage of human civilization. A church that doesn't give focused attention to preaching the word of God that is centered on Christ crucified and raised is a church where the spirit isn't ordinarily working, which is a dead church full of dead people. But a church that devotes itself to preaching can expect the spirit to bear fruit. A new faith, people growing in faith, demonstrating that faith with fruit, confessing their sins, extending grace and forgiveness, unity with one another, loving God, loving their neighbors, and having hearts that are willing to do so in more radical and beautiful ways before. That's why we come back here week after week and we want to hear what God's word has to say because this is where the spirit goes forth and brings life again to our dead bones. Week after week, as we hear God's promises to us in Christ Jesus, it's the spirit who puts flesh on our bones and fills our lungs with new life yet again. This is where we grow in grace. This is where we grow into knowing how we live as people who are alive. And the cure for feeling dry and dusty then isn't by keeping yourself away from worship. It's actually quite the opposite. Dusty people and dry souls need more than anything to have the life-giving waters of the Spirit poured out afresh upon them through the Word. So praise the Spirit of life. Not only did the Father have mercy to send his son Jesus for us, but even when we were unable to believe, he also breathed forth his spirit to resuscitate us and to make us his people with hearts willing to believe, to live, to be truly alive. Far beyond our own self-focused conceptions of being alive and to grow into communion with the living God himself. Let's pray.